Hi guys, uh, my name is Joy. I'm probably unfamiliar to most of you, but I am one of the department interns here at Northview. I'm specifically with the discipleship department, but they are lending me to young adults for tonight. Uh, Freddie asked me to teach on the passage for tonight, and as you can probably tell, there are a lot of similarities between me and Freddie. We both have very short hair. Um, we both prefer Coca-Cola to Pepsi. Um, we both are very soft-spoken, gentle people. If you can't tell, I'm kidding. Um, other than the fact that we both have short hair, Freddie and I are very different, but we both have a deep love of God's word and believe that it is applicable, applicable to us today, even commands given to Israel thousands of years ago. So the passage we'll be in today is Numbers 5, verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bible, you can pull it up or pull it up on your phone. Um, and, but before we get there, uh, I want to tell you about my dad. So when I was about 12, we lived in a big city, and one of the main ways we got around that city was to take taxis. And my brother, who was a couple years older than me, he was allowed to take taxis across town on his own. Um, and, but me, as a 12-year-old and a very independent child, I believed I should also be allowed to take taxis on my own to travel across town. But my dad informed me that I actually was not. He didn't think it was a good idea for a cute little 12-year-old girl to go in a taxi on her own across a big city. And my independent mind didn't understand it, but now as an adult, I understand that he just wanted to protect me. He had this rule that um, would protect his, do his daughter, whom he loved, from any danger. And so, um, even though I didn't understand it now, I see his heart in it. And we know that this is what a true of rules. Rules reveal the heart of the person who is making the rule. That was true of my dad and is also true of God. God's commands reveal his heart, and that is what we're going to be talking about today. God's commands reveal his heart. And in the passage, we're going to talk through two commands and both of those are going to reveal different things about him. The first command is going to reveal his desire to be near, and then the second command is going to reveal his desire to restore. First command, his desire to be near, and the second command, his desire to restore. Before we read the passage, I wanna give you some context. Um, you, if you've been here since the beginning of the study, you know that Israel has just been taken out of slavery in Egypt, and they have come, they're headed towards the promised land. But right now, they're sort of in the awkward in-between. They're in the wilderness, or the wild, as Freddie has called it, and God is teaching them how to interact both with each other and with him. We also learned a couple of weeks ago that God has placed his dwelling place in the center of the camp. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel and at their center is where he's placed his tabernacle. And now he's going to teach them how to keep his tabernacle there, how to keep his presence in that place. 
So now I will read through verses one through four. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. So from the beginning, we see God's heart. We see his desire to be near. We see his desire to stay in the camp, and for his people to not defile the place in which he dwells. He's making these rules so that he can stay near to his people. So in the command, he gives three things that cause us to be defiled, cause us to be impure. And the first one is leprosy, um, which like this probably wasn't what we think of as leprosy. This was any sort of scaly or patchy skin disease. Uh, So you can think of something like psoriasis. Um, The second one was discharge. And then the third one was contact with the dead. But if you're a young Israelite, you actually are pretty familiar with these kinds of commands. Uh, In fact, you've probably had to listen through the entirety of Leviticus read to you. If you don't know what Leviticus is, um, it's one of the first five books of the Bible, and if you are doing a uh, back-to-back Bible reading plan, it is probably the one that you stopped reading at. It's a slog to get through. It's a long list of rules that God has given to his people. But we know that rules reveal the heart of the rule maker. So the rules that are given in Leviticus, they are giving you rules for how to be clean and how to be right with one another and how to make sure that the temple is correct. These are all rules that will keep God's presence in their midst and keep them in right relationship with each other. So we see God's heart, his heart to be near and his heart to restore. So so if you're a young Israelite hearing these commands, these are familiar to you. You know these things. And we know that God is trying to protect the people protect the children that he loves. It's sort of like um, if a parent is telling their kids that uh, not to touch the stove because it's hot. They're not telling it because they like the rule. They're not saying don't touch the stove because they really love making sure that their kid doesn't have any fun. They're telling them not to touch the stove because they don't want their kid to get hurt. This is what God's laws do for his people. So as an Israelite, you've listened to the rules, you um, know all of these things about uncleanness, and actually you know that you don't permanently stay unclean. There were actually commands and restrictions, and if you were removed from the camp because of your uncleanness, you had to quarantine for seven days, and then you were actually allowed to come back into the camp if you were confirmed clean. So they know that this is not something that has to last forever. But what they are learning from this command 
is that nothing unclean can be anywhere near to God's presence. You can sort of think of it like um, in a surgeon's room. There can be not a hint of disease, not a hint of germs, or that will or the patient will suffer because of that, or something will go terribly wrong. So in that room, everything has to be scrubbed down so that the surgeon can do his work. God knew that he was so holy that if anything came near to him that was unclean, it would be destroyed. So he set up this rule to protect the people and so that his presence could be near to them. This reminds us of another time that God uh, wanted to be near to his people, and it goes all the way back to Genesis and in the garden. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates this place. He creates this paradise on earth, and he creates humanity, and he places them there. And he, puts, and he is there with them. He's literally walking around. His presence is with them. And what does humanity do? They mess it up. We know in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve did the literal one thing that God told them not to do, and they cut themselves off from the presence of God. They're expelled from the garden. They can no longer walk in his presence, and they are now blemished by sin. And what comes as a result of our sin? Amongst other things, death, disease, and pain. All of these things that make us unclean. When I was uh, about one, my mom bought me a white dress for my birthday, and I was the most adorable thing. And I was parading around in my white dress, but my mom also bought for me a chocolate cake. And I managed to climb onto the counter that the cake was on and just dig into this thing. And there was chocolate all over my face and all down my white dress. It was permanently stained. There was no coming back from it. And my mom knew this. My mom knew that she would never get that white dress clean again. This is what our sin does to us. It stains us, it blemishes us, and we can never get it clean again. Adam and Eve messed up in the garden, and ever since, humanity has been stained by sin. You guys have probably heard Freddie say, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of humanity is stained by this sin, but it's not just impurity, it's also immorality. In Matthew 15, 18 to 20, it says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. All people are stained by sin. Everyone falls short. But luckily, we have a God that doesn't give up on us. For Israel, he had given them this rule, this rule that reveals his heart. We can think of the Old Testament God as this harsh, 
like by the book, judgy, like doesn't have any sense of humor kind of God. And I just don't think that really reflects who he reveals himself to be, even in these commands. He is showing grace, he's showing love, he wants to be near to his people. This is the God that saves in the Old Testament. And that God knows that Israel is going to mess, th mess things up. They're not going to be able to keep the camp clean. They're not going to be able to do everything right. And when Israel falls short, what they're supposed to learn is that they can never do this by their own efforts. They actually need someone else to cleanse them. If you were here on the weekend, you heard Mark quote out of Ezekiel about cleanliness. He said from Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. God knew that he would have to be the one to cleanse us from our impurities. He would have to be the one to cleanse Israel from its impurities that they would never be able to do this themselves. So what do we see in the New Testament? In Mark 5, we get this beautiful story of a woman that has been bleeding for 12 years. That's not the beautiful part, but it's a good story. She's been bleeding for 12 years, and that means, uh, you remember, the discharge is what makes you unclean. So she has been unclean for 12 years. She's been cut off from the presence of God for 12 years. And not only that, it was said that, it, or one of the rules was that if you touched another person while you are unclean, you make them unclean as well. So she had to deal with pain that was both social it was social, it was spiritual, and it was physical. She had to deal with this for so long. And then she heard about Jesus. She heard about someone that was walking around, that was working miracles, that, that was healing people. And so she went and she hoped that if I just touch his clothing, maybe I will be healed. And she's in the crowd and she's being wrestled around, but she barely touches his clothing and she is healed. Her uncleanness is removed from her. But Jesus doesn't let her just do that and run away. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That's Mark 5, 34. Jesus cleansed that woman so she could once again enter the presence of God. Although he was clean, her uncleanness didn't stain him. This would be like my white dress touching the chocolate cake and actually turning it to vanilla. Not really, but it would be that extreme and it would be that impossible for something clean to make something unclean clean. But Jesus does this. Jesus does the impossible thing. She was no longer cut off from the place of where God, she was no longer cut off from where God dwelled. She could once again draw near. Israel was unclean, and God provided a way for them to still be near. 
The woman was unclean, and Christ healed her so that she could draw near. We, too, are unclean. We are blemished by disease, death, and pain, but more than that, we are blemished by sin. If you have ever sinned, you are now blemished and cannot be near to God. But Christ provided a way to be clean. Christ died so that we might be cleansed before God. He took away our impurity so that his presence might dwell within us. So are you cleansed? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you confessed your sins? Have you let Christ cleanse you and wash you free of all sin and all shame? Have you received his spirit within you? I hope the answer is yes. If you're a Christian here, then the answer is definitely yes. But if you are not a Christian here, this is your invitation. Don't wait until you are good enough. You will never be clean enough. Don't think that you are already good enough. You are, uh, we are all blemished by sin. But Christ wants to draw you near. He wants to cleanse you from that. So confess that he is Lord, and he will draw you near. This is God's heart. He desired to be near to his people, and he desires to be near to you today. So be cleansed. That was the first command. Now we're going to get into the second command, and we're going to talk about God's desire to restore so we're going to read through verses 5 through 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, atonement, the restitution for wrong, shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations, whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his." So the second, com <laughs> the second command that God gives to his people is essentially conflict resolution. God is dealing with fresh new baby Israel and he's, he knows that they are about to spend a lot of time walking together, camping together, and enduring the wilderness together. I don't know if you've ever been on a really long camping trip um, but there's usually a point where you are tired, you've been walking for days, you are just absolutely exhausted, and you begin to not like your friends or your family or whoever you're traveling with very much. You kind of start to rub each other the wrong way. And so God is looking at his people who are essentially going on this really long camping trip and realizing 
they need some guidelines on how to deal with conflict. So he gives them this command. Um, God in his infinite wisdom gives him, them this command. So let's walk through the details of how he does it. First, he says when a man or a woman commits any sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord. Now, this is a little surprising. I just told you that this is about conflict management, but the first thing that he says is that it's breaking faith with the Lord. Well, he's pointing out that the conflict or the sins that we do against each other are also against God. There is a horizontal component to it, but it, there's also the vertical component between God. And this is counterintuitive. Like, if I'm mean to Freddie and say that his soccer skills suck, you would say I have to go apologize to Freddie, not apologize to God. But what he's saying here is that there are these two levels. It's between us and it's also between God. In uh, another example would be in Psalm 51, 4, David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you know the story, King David was this powerful man and he, um, he took advantage. He committed adultery with a woman and he ended up killing the guy that was married to her and then marrying her and you should be listening to this line against you and you only have I sinned and being like no <laughs> you sinned against that other guy you sinned against her but what he's saying here is that not only are we sinning against each other but we're breaking relationship with God so we have to fix it on both levels. So God first gives this command and tells you how to fix it on the horizontal. And so it first starts with conviction. They might realize right away what they did or they might realize 10 years down the line, someone might come and say, you did this to me long in the future. But whenever that conviction comes, the immediate response is confession. They say they need to own up to it. They have to admit it. Don't beat around the bush, don't make excuses, don't say, they did something worse to me, so I shouldn't have to apologize, no. Own up to it, admit it. That's what he's telling the people of Israel. And then after confession, he says that they may need to make restitution. Or uh, this means just to pay back what is owed. But he says that you have to pay back what is owed plus one-fifth. So if I stole $20 out of your wallet, I'd have to pay you back $24 to make restitution. And this isn't even the most extreme restitution command. There's one in Exodus 30, no, 22, 1, that if you steal an ox, you have to pay back five oxen. So that $20 I stole, it's now $100. That's the cost of restitution. That's the cost of being restored to relationship with each other. So first we've got confession, second we've got restitution. The final step is atonement. And we have to be made, this is what makes us right with God. So 
And this was how God did it with it in the Old Testament. He wanted to be right with his people, so he provided this way. He provided the ram of atonement so that um, their sins might be covered. But even with all of these things, like the first command, God knows that his people will fall short. There's not enough rams in the world to truly make atonement for all of the ways that we wrong each other. Eventually, we need something greater than ourselves to do the work. And that is why Christ came. He made atonement for us. He restored us to relationship with God so that we could be restored to relationship with one another and with him. Uh, Another New Testament story in Luke 19, uh, you get the story of Zacchaeus. And you might know him as a wee little man that climbed a sycamore tree. That's at least the song that we sing. But the details of the story is that he was a tax collector. And at that time, it was common practice for tax collectors to basically lie and cheat everybody that they collected taxes from. They would tell you uh, one number that you had to pay when really it was way lower than that. And then they would pocket the change. So we probably know that Zacchaeus stole from a lot of people. But he also hears about Jesus, and he decides to go and see him. And while, when he sees him, Jesus says that he wants to come to his house, which was a sign of peace, a sign of grace. And he comes to his house, and they are restored And Zacchaeus is so thrilled by the grace that Christ has shown to him. He says he's going to give all of his money to the poor, and then he's also going to pay back everybody he owed, or everybody he stole from, plus four times that. So that's that restitution law. He's going to make restitution with these people. Zacchaeus was so inspired by Christ's grace that he wanted to go and basically give all of his money away. Are we so inspired by Christ's grace that we want to go and make restitution? It is only by God's grace and Christ's sacrifice that we are saved. And by that same grace, we can be reconciled to one another. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. That's pretty far. So God actually lays out a pretty uh, clear path to reconciliation in this passage. He's got conviction, confession, restitution, and atonement. First of all, conviction, we have to realize our sin, and this is the Holy Spirit working in you. He's pushing you towards restoration. He's pushing you to know what it is in your life that needs to be resolved. And I'll be honest with you, I'm bad at this one. Um, When I feel convicted, I want to sit and I want to stew and I want to argue with God about how he's probably wrong about what I need to fix. But what it says here is so clear. When you feel convicted, that is when you act. The second one is owning a confession, owning up to what you've done. Maybe you think you're in the right. 
Maybe the other person said something worse. That doesn't matter. It's our responsibility to go and resolve it. And then the last is restitution. Don't just say it, do it. God takes reconciliation to the next level and says you have to act on it. And I'm sorry, that wasn't the last one. The last one is atonement. But this one is a little odd because it's not a step that we do. It's one that Christ does for us. So if you're not a Christian, again, this is the invitation that he has to be atoned in your relationship with God. But if you are a Christian, this is the step of rejoicing. Because now you are, you are good with God and you're good with each other. Um, just to illustrate this, my, my sister and I are great friends and we lived together for a long time. But she and I had different cleaning standards for, uh, well, we still have different cleaning standards. But when we were living together, she was initiating and starting to clean the house before I felt the need to. And this was causing this tension between us. And I realized this, and I was convicted of it, and I was like, well, maybe I don't have to deal with it, but then I realized I did have to deal with it. And so I had to come to her and, I said, and say that I'm sorry for not, um, not loving you in this way, not respecting how you want our house to be. And after that, I had to go and clean the house. <laughs> if I don't follow up with action what I have confessed to be true, then have I really made reconciliation between us? Now, by the standards of this passage, I should have scrubbed the house from top to bottom, spotless. I didn't do that, probably should have, but this is the cost of being reconciled with each other. God has laid out this clear path for us towards reconciliation. So, who have you wronged? Who comes to mind when you think of someone that you need to be reconciled with? Right now is the moment of conviction. Right now, the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind someone that you need to be at peace with. So will you go? Will you confess? Will you reconcile? At the top, I talked about my dad and his rules for me, his little girl, and even though I didn't like them and I didn't want them, I now recognize how much he loved me in those rules. And we see that in God's commands, too. His commands for Israel were ones of love, desires to be near, desires to restore his people. And now, he also invites us today to be made clean by him. He invites us to draw near to him. He commands us to be restored to each other, and he invites us to be restored to him. See God's heart. See his love for you, and then draw near and be restored. I'm gonna pray for us, and then the worship team is going to come back and lead us in a couple of songs. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even things you said thousands of years ago are still 
true for us today. And we thank you that you are a God of grace and a God of love that convicts us, that pushes us, that enables us to be restored to one another. Lord, I pray as we go out that we would seek out those people that we need to be restored to, that you would give us the courage, the strength to love each other and be at peace with one another. I thank you, Lord, for this time. I thank you for this place. In Jesus' name, amen.